Osiris production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Here we are, humans, season two of Dead to Me. They said it couldn't be done. Our attorneys said it shouldn't be done after the Netflix show with the same name. But this is our spot on the lot, right? Who cares about search rankings anyway? We're going to do things a little differently this season. Instead of having themed episodes, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at Dead Studio Albums, which is an underexplored area of Deadology that lets us touch on some of our favorite ideas, but from a different angle. We're also likely to examine Jerry Garcia's self-titled solo debut, Bob Weir's Ace, and Mickey Hart's Rolling Thunder, as they all contributed valuable songs to the Dead repertoire. And the same can be said for the album Skull and Roses, or Skullfuck, if you're into that kind of thing. In other words, we have a set list, but the jams could go anywhere. Speaking of jams, here's some I want to tell you about. Nugs.net is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Dead and Company, Phil Lesh and Friends, and Phil's Terrapin Family Band, and other Dead-centric acts like J-Rad. So you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. Just a ton of stuff. It's available on desktop, iOS, and Android apps, Sonos, and Bluos. Just like you, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics. So, they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net backslash dead to me and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, Nugs.net slash dead to me for 35% off an annual subscription. And that's another new thing this season. You'll be hearing a few spots here and there highlighting select partners whose wares are worth exploring. But right now, let's explore the Grateful Dead. In the land of the dark, the ship of the sun is drawn by the Grateful Dead. The cover for the band's self-titled debut supposedly contains that quote from the Egyptian Book of the Dead, but it's basically illegible. The music stands out better, yet it's still just a snapshot of the band's rapid creative evolution. By January 1967, the Grateful Dead had already passed the acid tests, but hadn't yet wrapped their hive mind around the recording studio. Not that they were lacking confidence. Everyone was riding high from the band's increasingly well-attended shows in and around San Francisco, and sessions for the debut album began just a week after the human being at Golden Gate Park. It was a permagrin situation, and the dead brought that vibe to Los Angeles where they'd spend four whole days on their very first album for Warner Brothers Records. The Dead had already been in L.A. a year before, participating in the infamous Watts acid test and making a half-assed attempt to break into the music industry. Mostly, though, they hung around in their communal crash pad, a.k.a. Owsley's Meat and Acid Emporium, 
Listeners will recall Rosie McGee's description of those days from the final episode of season one. After the initial L.A. adventure, the dead spent a few idyllic weeks at Rancho Olumpali, which Rosie also told us about. Then it was back to San Francisco and the legendary house at 710 Ashbury. In the meantime, the dead moved minds on the emerging psychedelic ballroom circuit. With greater attendance at gigs and the influence of peers like the Jefferson Airplane, the band fielded an offer from Warner Brothers, who their new lawyer, Brian Rohan, called a shit vanilla label that had no clue. Rohan was pretty green when it came to representing musicians, but he quickly gained the upper hand in negotiations with the label. He said, So I go to see Mo Austin and Joe Smith. Total height, 10 feet. Kesey had taught me this trick about leaving the scene of movie producers. You just get up and leave. They think you're going to the bathroom, and then you go home. So these guys come running down the hall, and I'm not a big guy, but under one armpit is Joe Smith, and the other armpit is Mo Austin. What's the matter? What's the matter? So I say, you have insulted me. You have insulted my client. You have insulted the music scene in San Francisco. This is what the deal is for insulting me. You will pay all the costs of recording and not charge them against their royalties. You will give them X amount of money and we will keep all of the publishing. And they say, okay, okay. And I go, man, this is going to be fun. The sessions seemed like fun too. The wives and girlfriends came down from San Francisco and the overall atmosphere in RCA Studio A was a party, which wasn't exactly what producer David Hassinger signed up for. Mountain Girl, who had only recently hooked up with Jerry Garcia, remembered Hassinger as this typical L.A. guy with jowls, heavy tan, long slick-backed hair, lots of vitalis, white cardigan sweater with a gold wristwatch. He was trying to be cool, and they were giving him a hard time. He'd make suggestions, and they'd say stuff like, It'll ruin everything if we do it that way. Maybe Mountain Girl should have produced. She's always struck me as a woman who can get shit done. An interesting side note about RCA Studio A is that anyone who recorded there had to use RCA engineers. Now, this was a Warner Brothers album, and that's who David Hassinger worked for. But he wasn't behind the faders. When Garcia played on the airplane's surrealistic pillow, Hassinger was the engineer, and he was brought on with the dead primarily for those abilities. Hassinger himself expressed regret that he couldn't be more hands-on. They didn't really need a producer to tell them what to play or how to play it, he said. They needed someone to help them get the record to sound the way they wanted it to sound, and that's what I would have liked to have done. We'll talk about the music on the album in greater detail shortly, but it's good to point out that the band really had no idea what they were doing in the studio at this stage. It's also interesting to compare to live recordings of that time, which reveal an improvisational imagination that often evaded them in the studio. On the Grateful Dead album, there's kind of a rushed quality as though they were just trying to get from point A to point B, which any head can tell you is not the dead way. Mountain Girl claims the accelerated tempos are because the band was scarfing down her diet pills. I'm guessing there was also natural adrenaline, which is common with young bands hitting the studio for the first time. If you're DIY, there's the whole time is money factor, but the dead essentially had a blank check from Warner Brothers, though they didn't really take full advantage of that until the next year's follow-up, Anthem of the Sun. Garcia 
thought the debut captured their sound well enough. I think the album is honest, he said. It sounds like us. Phil Lesh had a different opinion. I think it's a turd, he said. I don't know if it's our place to settle this, but we might as well try. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. Oh man, we've got the dream team here today assembled, Kevin and Eduardo. It's like the Avengers after the snap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure I got snapped to the Midwest. Yeah. So we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about the Grateful Dead studio albums. And I figured, why not start at the beginning? So we're going to be looking at the Grateful Dead self-titled debut from March 1967. And obviously, in that era, culture was moving at light speed. You had all these kids who had previously been into folk music suddenly taking acid and going electric, and the Grateful Dead were definitely part of that wave. And remember, they hadn't actually been the Grateful Dead for very long at that point. They had changed their name from the Warlocks, and just before that, they were a jug band with a largely acoustic repertoire. So going into the studio in L.A. as the electric Grateful Dead was kind of a big deal. And it's a little bit different than the live incarnation of the band at that time which was coming out of the acid tests where you know they would freak out on stage for hours and sometimes even not play depending on how high they were (laughs) so they scored their record deal with warner brothers and they were very excited and they went into the studio and were deeply confused but they had all of these folk numbers that they had carried over from the warlocks and the jug band and to me it seems like you know they were just trying to get this record done man i want to back up a little to the folk thing because i I think that's that's actually really important to this discussion is like you said we were coming out of an age in america of folk musicians were the thing Mm -hmm. uh it was like what 65 when dylan plugged in and sort of broke that all open but you there's this long tradition and ed you can speak to this uh, of people just passing these old blues and folk songs down through history and reworking them uh, to this day. And there's no less than I think like half the album is just standards, essentially. Yeah, there's a lot of material that's not original to them, but that would have been really well known to the people traveling the Americana circuit. Um, And what's interesting, I think, for a lot of us is that if you like the dead or if you're dead curious and, and you've never gone back and listened to this, there's a lot of songs here that you know, and it's kind of fun to hear an awkward kind of teenaged Grateful Dead fumbling around with sitting on top of the world or something like <laughs> right. that. Which... And the funny thing is a lot of those standards that appear on this first Dead record actually persisted in the band sets for many, many years and decades mm-hmm. after that. I mean, Cold Rain and Snow and Morning Dew, you'll hear those all the way right up through the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dead and Company recently performed Morning Dew with Johnny Mayer on Jerry Garcia's Wolf Guitar. <laughs> But back to this Teenage Grateful Dead, which you describe, and I think it's a great description. They sound really excitable, you know. They're kind of in a rush to get from point A to point B, which is a lot different than, you know, I think the dead that many of us have come to love, where they just take their time and meander, and eventually they get somewhere, or they don't. But the debut gives us a different snapshot of the dead, and I wouldn't necessarily call this record hyper-focused, but it certainly is efficient and getting the numbers across oh it's rushed (laughs) it has that rushed quality for sure (laughs) right 
Yeah, and and I think it's this is actually kind of the perfect intro for this band and what they would become because there is that sort of rush, there is that sort of spazzing out about stuff, but it but it is hewing very closely to the American songbook, even in the originals that they do, um, and even like some more modern stuff like you mentioned, Morning Dew is a cover. Good Morning Little Schoolgirl had been made a hit twice over already in the pop era. Right, the Yardbirds in 1964 is the one that most people are going to know. Mm-hmm. They skew very close to this but at the same time they're sort of like echoing their live show and the sounds of the albums that were out then like the psychedelic sounds of the 13th floor elevators yeah. would come out in October of the year before right? and the sounds are like all leaking into how people create because that's just how that goes mm-hmm. so th- they start to be uh, you start to see what I consider to be the actual core of the Grateful Dead is that they take this familiar music and they just very radically subvert it yeah and 13th 13- Floor Elevators, R.I.P. Rocky Erickson, is actually a really great comparison. A side note, uh, Janis Joplin almost joined the Elevators when she lived in Texas, but then she skedaddled to San Francisco and made history in a different direction. But I think you're right. At that time, there were albums that would have been known to the Bay Area musicians like The Dead and the 13th Floor Elevators are certainly one of them, and The Beatles, obviously. But essentially, it's a party record. And you're going to go to this party, right? (laughs) Totally. You're going to this party. Yeah. Right. This high school dance, basically. Right. <laughs> that's the role that the Grateful Dead saw themselves as fulfilling. Yeah. And that continued right until the end. But at this point in history, I mean, obviously, they're coming out of the acid tests, which is one hell of a sock hop, kids. <laughs> I mean, the skies have opened up, you know, the crawling chaos is very much present. And some of that actually did make it to the record on tracks like Viola Lee Blues. But there's still a lot missing, mm-hmm. especially in the lyrical department on the originals. Robert Hunter hasn't gotten there yet. And Jerry Gar- Garcia's attempts at lyrics on songs like Cream Puff War. It's basically psychedelic jabberwocky, which is fine, but it's not the elevated kind <laughs> like you'll hear on China Cat Sunflower mm-hmm. once Hunter got there. Well, there's a, there's a little bit of a feeling of like, you know, even though this is a very song-centered album, when you think of The Dead and you think about their catalog, it's easy to listen to this and think a little bit like, but, you know... Uh, where, where are the songs? Like the songs, it's a combination of the production and the fact that I think they made a conscious decision to make this a really sort of tight and focused album. But, you know, each song sort of like, it just sort of like walks in, says hello, and then it's out the door. Yeah, I mean, there's a um, workmanlike quality to it. And I think some of that has to do with their greenness in the studio environment and the amount of time that they had to make the record. And in retrospect, I think there were differing opinions within the band on whether or not right. they had successfully accomplished their mission. Jerry Garcia was a little bit, uh, more fond of the record as a snapshot, but Phil Lesh was pretty upfront about not liking the record and thinking that it didn't represent the dead, even as they existed at that point in time. I mean, let's not forget, jam bands did not exist. I mean, if you if you wanted like excursions in in Sonics, like you would pick up a jazz record where mm-hmm. like two tracks would yeah. take up an entire side of an LP. They do get out here on this one though. Viola Lee Blues is ten minutes yeah. on this. Yeah. Uh, which, if you think about putting that on a record, even now, somebody puts a 10-minute song on a record, and you're like, ugh. <laughs> well, you know, I think uh, Hendrix was probably pushing the envelope mm-hmm. a little yep. bit at that time. Are You Experienced actually came out 
after the self-titled Grateful Dead record. I think it was May 1967. So the Grateful Dead actually beat Hendrix to the punch. Uh, in terms of the length of songs, Viola Lee Blues certainly is longer than anything on Are You Experienced, although Are You Experienced has the self-titled track, which is mm-hmm. a motherfucker of a psychedelic song. And, you know, the Airplane were the first Bay Area band to break big nationally, but even their songs were kind of, you know, tailored to a pop market. And the interesting side note there, of course, is that Jerry Garcia played on the Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow album. Contributed the name, in fact. That's right. And that's how the Dead got David Hassinger to produce their album, because he had been the producer and engineer on the Airplane record. Of course, he was actually limited in terms of what he could do engineering-wise on the Dead record, because when they recorded at RCA, they had to use RCA engineers. That said, Betty Cantor Jackson was up in the mix. That's right. It's amazing that they had the core team coming together at that point. Can I ask a technical question, though? Because this comes up a lot when I'm listening to sort of, you know, this time frame, like the Nuggets, all those kinds of things. Okay. What is the deal with recording tambourines? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why? Why does no one get it right? Yeah, it's pretty insane. If you listen to the self-titled Grateful Dead record, the tambourine's probably louder than Bill Kreutzmann's snare drum. It makes no sense. (laughs) But if you check out the 50th anniversary edition of the self-titled debut, Mm -hmm. it comes with some live versions of the songs on the album. And to my ears, they're better realized, at least sonically. I mean, you can hear Billy's drums, and it's not so much of a tambourine apocalypse yeah it just comes it's just so it's so startling in the records of this time and you just think what who who could not figure out how to track or, or mix these? i mean it, it's like the cocaine gated drums of the 80s <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just a fixture you know yeah. some of those stylisms are definitely of the era and i would argue that that extends to the songs as well particularly the pig pen repertoire i mean all that stuff was so core to the dead at that time especially live and i think we have to admit that despite this album's charms it is is definitely not in concert dead when anybody brings up the dead or any jam band for that matter uh they say oh man it's not about the albums it's about the live show right which there is some truth to that with the dead uh i certainly believed that that myth that it was all about the live shows and in the course of doing this show i have listened to so much live dead that i it's just bleeding out of my ear <laughs> so i put on these records and all of a sudden yeah Years later, it this is like super refreshing. Mm-hmm. This is like this is a garage rock band that like some kids that I could be talking to, right? Uh, who are just coming up, right? This is this is the type of music that that we're still seeing. I don't know if we're seeing a resurgence, but we're seeing it stylistically. This is sort of what's going on again in the culture. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's something in the water. So yeah, I, I put this on, and honestly, I wonder if I put this on for somebody who'd never listened to the Dead. If they would even know it. I think they wouldn't. And someone who likes kind of lo-fi, you know, someone who listens to right. a lot of uh, kind of garage rock. You like the OCs? Yes. <laughs> right. Ty Siegel, you know. Yeah. yeah. And Ty Siegel covered the Grateful Dead St. Stephen not that long ago. There are aspects of the self-titled debut that I think <laughs> are a little bit more of a time capsule. Uh, some of that has to do with the recording technology and the approach to making records of that time. Uh, but there's also that newness about the Grateful Dead experiencing themselves as performers and transitioning that to the yeah. studio. Mm-hmm. 
I came across a quote from David Gans, friend of the show, David Gans, and he said that at this time, the Grateful Dead really weren't all that different from other Bay Area R&B bands with light psychedelic attributes, you know, groups like the Bo Brummels, for example. And, you know, nobody really remembers the Bo Brummels, but I checked them out again uh, in preparation for this show. And, you know, I think the observation generally holds true. At least on this album, I mean, when you get to the next record, Anthem of the Sun, things get really weird and really experimental really quickly. And I think that continues through Aox and Moxoa. And then after that, you know, they sort of pieced out into Cowboyville for a little while with American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. But the self-titled debut does have the dead essence. (laughs) And it sets a template for certain kinds of records that are still being made today. And there's no doubt about it. It's a spirited record. Mm-hmm. Like, just the energy that's in there, whether it's, uh, you know, Mountain Girls Diet Pills or whatever it is uh, that was driving them to it. You know, they get in, and, and it's just this lightning bolt that goes through it. And I think you see that on a lot of the songs. You see that on The Golden Road. You see that on, uh, I mean, honestly, the blues covers. Good Morning yeah. Little School Girl is fiery, beat it on down the line. I think where you first see the Inklings, and this is why I think this is such a good introduction to this band, is on Morning Dew. Yeah. Which is, mm-hmm. which is it was a folk song, uh, Bonnie Dobson. Uh, there was a couple people that recorded it before The Dead, but The Dead sort of made it famous, and it became a staple in their live shows. Mm-hmm. This version isn't necessarily uh, outstanding. It's not remarkable. It's five minutes long. There are like 15-minute versions of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's quintessential Dead. It has that darkness and light. I mean, on... A superficial level, it's kind of a happy folk song, but... It's about nuclear apocalypse. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It has that whole sci-fi doom aspect to it. It kind of reminds me of uh, uh, that book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. Yeah, yes. And I think that book was published in 1962 or something, so there was probably already an awareness of, you know, eco-horror. Yeah. It's based on a film called On the Beach. Oh, that's right. My grandfather loved that movie. Yeah. And and for people who don't know, On the Beach basically plays out that nuclear war has eradicated the world. There's about a thousand people on a beach left in Australia, and then they die. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what happens if we blow ourselves to shit. Right. And so, obviously, that's a concern. Um, you're leading up to Vietnam, like the yeah. really intense era with Vietnam and like so wars on people's mind and it it just it feels like honestly like radical in they're trying to compete with what came before them the Rolling Stones the Beach Boys Mm -hmm. the Beatles and then they're like but we're gonna do this yeah we'll see your paint it black and raise you a morning dew let's actually give it a listen Thank you. 
Beautiful. Just a little taste anyway. Listeners can feel free to fire up this song and the rest of the record on their end, but it's nice to hear it because there's definitely, you know, some dead qualities to it, but it's also in keeping with the folk traditions that uh, came from the pre-electric era. It's a really smart choice of a cover because it gives the album a lyrical heft that it otherwise might have lacked. And Garcia's performance is amazing, too. I get the sense that he's lived with this song for a little while, at least. And I'm not the expert, but I imagine he'd been performing this back in the acoustic days. Yeah, the core building blocks of what made that song so powerful, which is the context that Kevin just described. And then when Garcia's nailing it, his voice, he just sounds so young and so kind of innocent. Um, and even late in life, you know, as his voice was suffering, when he, when he could summon up the strength to sing, he still had that sort of innocent quality uh, in his singing. It's just that element, that powerful sort of foundation is, is there even in a version that um, you know, you probably wouldn't listen to unless you're listening to this album all the way through. Yeah, that's right. And it's, cool that he's already commanding a certain authority on this material and again i suspect that's probably because he's lived with these songs as folk songs for some time Mm -hmm. and you hear a lot of in the guitar work and that especially uh, towards the end these figures that we just take for granted this is just how garcia plays you hear these start to take shape that they don't take shape on this it's where he stretches out and you hear these forms he just uses over and over throughout his career uh they're instantly recognizable they're instantly familiar and uh they're all like sort of packed into this if not yet fully realized i think another great thing about this song is that even though it's influenced by uh, this this story of nuclear apocalypse it can also be seen as rebirth right yeah the whole thing about the dead the death and rebirth the endless cycle mm-hmm. um, and and that in and of itself is is showing that they're really not just thinking about the music they're making but but really thinking about their identity yeah and what they want to be right yeah and that's probably why it stayed in their sets you know it contains something of the essence of the dead the the meta themes of the band 
Another song from this record that stayed in their set list basically forever is Cold Rain and Snow. Um, I'm pretty sure you can hear that song all the way up to the 90s, you know, uh, sometimes depending on whether or not it was raining or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is basically an Appalachian murder ballad that goes all the way back to the early 1900s. I mean, this song has had a life independent of the Grateful Dead and of course the Grateful Dead transformed it and evolved it over several decades and you could probably argue that those later performances show a much more mature realization of cold rain and snow but I think even on this incipient studio version all of the elements are basically there and again that's probably because Garcia had lived with this song for some time going back to his folk days So let's check out a little bit of the Grateful Dead self-titled debut version of Cold Rain and Snow. organ break there I think this version is pretty jaunty at least compared to some of the later interpretations uh, from live shows across the decades I mean here they are definitely cruising right along that's what trucker speed will get you man (laughs) the pep on this album right the diet pills yeah Um, one thing that we've talked about is just how central the American songbook is to Garcia as a human totally Right. Before he's even, you know, the guy in the Grateful Dead. Yeah. It's never lost on me that his pet turtle was named Doc Boggs. And listeners, if you don't if you don't know Doc Boggs, do yourself a favor and go out and listen to Mm -hmm. some really fine early American music. The other corollary that I have in mind here that you alluded to, I think, earlier, Kevin, was this idea that, you know, recordings didn't go really far out. Um, Jazz was the closest thing. The, yeah. the, the feeling I have listening to this a little bit is that it's almost like when you go into like early Miles Davis or early Coltrane, you know, when they had to play things according to other people's rules before they were allowed to be themselves. Yep. And that's kind of that teenager vibe reference, you know, earlier that, that I yeah. think of. It's like someone else is dressing them here. They're going to a <laughs> dance and they're in like their dad's tux, you know, <laughs> this isn't their outfit yet. Right. And you guys have made some great points about that. Like also... This is a scarce media format. The LP was long playing, but it wasn't that long, you know, like for a band like the Grateful Dead, they really like to stretch it out live. There were obvious limitations just on the format. 
And this is something that would continue to annoy and bedevil the Grateful Dead throughout their entire history. But I think at the time, a combination of those format limitations and the idea that, you know, look, we only have four days to record this fucker. We got to get it done. Where's the diet pill? (laughs) Right. But I mean, the basic elements are definitely there. If you listen to Cold Rain and Snow, there's no doubt that this is how the band performed that song, at least at this time. I see a band who has to play like gigs where people expect covers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Fans of this genre of blues or folk would definitely know that song. So like, here's our version of that song. Yeah. And this is the way that they played it at that time. Of course, fans coming to the Grateful Dead at later points would experience different versions of Cold Rain and Snow in other circumstances and venues. I think a lot of people really kind of, if they're listening to the albums, won't go back past like Working Man's Dead. Yeah. Right. It's true. And and this phase is sort of weirdly it's it's so important to the band and so seminal, but it's it's probably really underheard by most people who love the dead. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I'm really psyched that we're doing this season and looking at the studio albums because it gives us the opportunity to kind of reflect on an aspect of the Grateful Dead that is oftentimes overlooked. I mean, right now, everyone seems to be really into Primal Dead, Early Dead, and I would argue that most of the focus is on the live version of the band. But when you listen to a dainty little album like this, you get a completely different impression, and I think it's equally important and equally vital. As a matter of fact, The Grateful Dead could be even more experimental in a studio context, which we'll get into uh, in much more detail when we listen to albums like Anthem of the Sun and Aox and Moxoa. But the point is, this is the flip side of The Grateful Dead coin, and it's really interesting and crucial to consider. And, you know, this is a fucking good record for a jam band. We have examples of lots of, of what is now jam bands who, who can't make a decent album. <laughs> oh, man. The angry letters are going to you. Are there any examples of, of jam bands that can make a decent album? <laughs> I guess it depends on what you categorize as jam. Yeah. But so we have all these examples. So like did anybody to argue for the dead that, that, that these aren't viable additions to their catalog? I mean, look, you like what you like. But at the end of the day, this I'll hold this up against any Dylan album. Ooh, from this period. Well, maybe not lyrically, right? Lyrically, of course not. But you go to different types of music for different feelings. Would you and Would you hold it up to Kevin? This is the key question for you. Would you hold it up to Pablo Honey? No, because <laughs> Pablo Honey is the greatest album ever made. Come on. But neither here nor there. Well, you know, what it demonstrates is that there's always room for growth. It's easy to, to just go back to this album and sort of hear all the things that the dead evolved past and that yeah yeah like the uh, 1960s production aesthetic and rhythm and blues tropes yeah yeah but there is plenty here to sort of recognize and it's it's fun it's fun to look at a picture of like someone you know but like before they were the person you know them as yeah that's a really good way to put it it also gives us an opportunity to actually consider what isn't represented and in this case i guess that's probably the jammier aspect of the band of course, that's also not entirely true because you have right. a song like Viola Lee Blues, which is definitely more representative of the hairy freakouts that the band was capable of conjuring live at this time. Yeah, and, and but it, it plays out exactly like you would play out at a dance. You got to keep people moving. And so it's just it's just a blues vamp. And, you know, that in and of itself is nothing spectacular. It's what is what they do with it. And, you know, the choice to actually put it on the record, which I think is interesting. 
Right. Well, I, th- I think that has to do with them like trying to like figure out their identity. Yeah, with The Grateful Dead, there's always a play for transformation. Although certain versions of the songs on this album, like Good Morning, Little Schoolgirl, is kind of straightforward, at least compared to what they would do in a live environment. But that song had been done before, and this is just, you know, another version of that song. Maybe a little hairier. Although, on the other hand, if you listen to the Sonny Boy Williamson, that version is pretty fucking hairy. Right. Uh, well, it's nastier than the Yardbird. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But the thing about Violi Blues, I think, that's interesting and, and about this identity that they're trying to form is that every uh, band member has said, I think Kreutzmann specifically said, you know, he didn't he didn't hate the album, but he was like, we were trying to we were learning how to be a band. Yeah. And we wanted we didn't know what we were quite yet. And but they knew some of what they were. Definitely. Well, part of the challenge probably was that their live shows at this point, you know, they're coming out of the craziest live phase of their entire careers, right? Where they're just playing hours on end with (laughs) no real set list or songs to speak of. And here's an album of just, you know, a bunch of two and a half minute songs. Yeah. With like that like fade out on a Garcia solo. Oh, I know. Some of that is just like so painful yeah. uh, to listen to. And I have to chalk it up to just, you know, the way records were made. Yeah. Yeah. That the, the solo at the end, I think it's at the end of sitting on top of the world where it's just the full Garcia, like, Oh, that's what it sounds like when, you know, someone who's really uh, proficient at the banjo is channeling John Coltrane on the guitar. Yeah. We better turn that down real fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hey, let's listen to a little bit of Viola Lee Blues. We're going to skip ahead to the freakout section since that's what we were talking about. It's probably a good way to play ourselves right out of this episode. I want to thank you guys for joining for season two of Dead to Me, where we look at the band's studio albums. And of course, we'll be back shortly with a in-depth analysis of Anthem of the Sun, which is the next in the queue. But for mm-hmm. now, let's check out a little bit of Viola Lee Blues.
Yeah, that does get a little freaky, doesn't it? Before we head out, I wanted to remind everybody about the opportunity at nugs.net for new subscribers to receive a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to nugs.net slash dead to me and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, you can give that gift of live music to a friend. Again, nugs.net slash dead to me for 35% off an annual subscription. And you will want to stick around for the rest of season two of Dead to Me. We're going to be looking at all of the Grateful Dead studio albums and a few extras here and there. So come on back in a couple of weeks for another short, strange trip through the land of the dead. In the meantime, find us online, deadtomepod.com, our socials, at deadtomepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. <laughs>